0: Hey, everyone, welcome to the African Football Roundup. This is going to be a weekly segment that we do on the African Five Aside podcast uh, YouTube page and uh, across podcasting platforms, where we're just going to recap uh, the happenings of uh, African football over the weekend and as well as the performances of African football players uh, around the world. So this week, we're going to be discussing uh, the unveiling of a new football tournament in Africa, the African Football League. And I think it's something that the wider footballing world is watching with curiosity, with interest. And so um, I think why not discuss it? So for those that don't know, the African Football League was initially announced as the African Super League. Uh, It was an idea of Gianni Infantino's and he announced it on TPM Zambi's 80th birthday. And initially when he announced it, he announced it as, you know, a 20-team competition with prize money of $200 million and that clubs would have to buy themselves in uh, with a $20 million buy-in. And I think immediately it was met with a lot of consternation. Uh, the detractors were saying that Janie Infantino didn't really know the African football market. How can he be throwing around numbers like this? Um, very few clubs, in fact, no clubs besides Al Ahli in Egypt, have a yearly budget of 20 million dollars and none of them can actually pay that just to buy themselves into a competition Um, and so it was very it was unilaterally announced the stakeholders were not really consulted Um, and as a result people were very very standoffish about it at the beginning Um, that said the african champions league is also broken Um, it's a competition where for the last five to ten years it's really cost more to participate in than to actually than any kind of prize money that you would win from it. Um, a club, an Algerian club a few years ago, Sierra Belouis, I believe traveled more than thirty five thousand kilometers in the group stages. Um, and when you consider the cost of, you know, either chartering your own airplane or or, you know, flying across the continent, usually with layovers in Turkey or, or Qatar or, or the United Arab Emirates, I mean, it's it's really, really expensive. and so. It became a tournament that was more of a burden than anything else. So people didn't really have the kind of opposition that they had towards the European Super League. Um, that one of the reasons was they, they believed that the European Super League either needs to be revamped or we need to create a new competition that's going to replace the Champions League. Um, and the truth is that at the moment, we have neither. <laughs> the champions league is running parallel to the african football league and at the same time it's not being revamped it's not being renovated nothing like that and at the same time you have the exact same teams that are t- playing in the african champions league they're again also playing in the african football league so there's a kind of parallel league it's not a replacement and at the same time it's not really a super league uh it kicked off this comp this competition kicked off this weekend there were eight teams you have it uh casablanca esperance de tunis El Ahli, uh, Petro Atletico from Angola, Tipi Mazembi, um, oh, and Yimba from Nigeria, Simba, and Mamelodi Sundowns. So as of right now, there's a lot of confusion. Um, is this a FIFA competition? Is this a CAF competition? At the moment, it's a FIFA competition. And I think uh, if you take a look at the sponsors, it's very clear. Uh, CAF just signed a deal with Puma uh, and the African Football League is outfitted by Macron, Uh, If you also look at the different sponsors in the African Football League, you have Visit Saudi, you have Visit Rwanda as well. Um, I think anybody with any rudimentary knowledge of uh, FIFA and their financial partners know that those two uh, countries are are very, very close to Gianni Infantino and FIFA. Um, And I think this is an important question to ask about it being a FIFA competition or a CAF competition because CAF is supposed to have African football's best interests at heart, whereas FIFA has a much wider scope. And when you consider how much importance FIFA are giving the FIFA Club World Cup, you sort of wonder if this African Football League is perhaps a first preliminary step into a wider Super League across the world, Uh, some kind of global Super League, considering especially, like I said, how much importance they place on the Club World Cup. Um, maybe they're going to morph this Club World Cup into some kind of you know, global Champions League where they have you know, four clubs from Africa, four clubs from Asia, four clubs from Europe, four clubs from South America, and four from North America. So after one match day, there's no real clear guiding principle to this tournament. Everyone seems lost. Um, it's been confirmed that the Champions League will continue. The preliminary rounds of that competition are underway. Not only will it continue, but the exact same clubs in the Champions League are playing in the African Football League. Um, and it really does seem like more of a FIFA experiment, uh, more than a tournament with a long-term vision. You had, you know, your Colinas, your Arsene Wenger's, Yuri Jorkayevs, um, all the FIFA top brass were uh, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, for, for the kicking off of this tournament. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if that kind of momentum carries into the latter rounds or if it was just really there for the inauguration. Anyways, the football was interesting. I thought it was a great test run for Tanzania with the upcoming AFCON in 2027 being awarded to East Africa. Uh, on the pitch, I thought Al-Ahli uh, versus Simba was the first match, and I thought it was the best match. It, matched, it finished in a, a 2-2 draw. Al-Ahli were wasteful early on. I thought Simba played well. Uh, but with a 2-2 draw, I do believe Al-Ahli had the advantage in the return leg. Sundown's tactically as innovative as ever with Ghulani Makwena and I do expect them with a 2-0 lead to uh, comfortably uh, beat Petro Atletico uh, back home in South Africa. We did also very comfortable versus Anyimba. who... Uh... Here's another question. What are Anyimba doing in the African Football League? Not only are they not even the, the top African West African team, they're not even the top Nigerian team, according to the most recent CAF rankings. I know historically they have a lot of glory, but the fact that enyimba in this tournament not only dilutes the competition of the tournament uh, but also it's led people to ask questions of the merit of of it all uh, are they there because Nuan Kwanu is the uh the president of enyimba and obviously he has very close ties to Arsene Wenger and, and FIFA as well i mean that's one of the things that everybody's not really sure about and finally TP mazembe versus espérance i think this is the only tie that's really still up for grabs uh mazembe i thought looked Quite decent. Uh, Kinsumbi, uh the 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 winger, looked very dangerous. Kobara scored his third very important goal. He's just 19 years old, the Malian uh, midfielder. He uh, he scored in the Champions League uh, preliminary rounds home and away from home, and now he has a goal in the African Football League. And so, yeah. And, and finally, uh, one last geopolitical note. I thought it was interesting that TP Mazambi didn't wear the Fly Rwanda sponsor. Um, and for those that don't know, The DRC and Rwanda have had a very contentious political relationship over the last five to ten years because of what's happening on the DRC's eastern border, where uh, Rwanda are accused of uh, financing and supporting these M23 rebels, uh, which have been uh, sort of attacking uh, the eastern border, according to the Congolese government. So we'll see. We'll see how this, this competition sort of continues to unfold. Was it just a, a, a very important kickoff, inauguration, uh, and now FIFA is just not going to care anymore? Uh, is each step of the competition going to be widely celebrated? Um, I think as African football observers, we're all just wondering, is this going to replace the Champions League? If it is, in what way? Is it going to be under the umbrella of FIFA or CAF, number one? Number two... I don't think people in Africa are opposed to having a sort of quarterfinal tournament as, as, as this football league is. Uh, the, the real expensive parts of the CAF, CAF Champions League is really the preliminary rounds and the group stages. But if we could have, for example, some kind of tournament in one city, in one venue, starting from the quarterfinals, and we can, as journalists, sort of all flock to that, turn, to that city, And we'll stay there for, you know, 10 to 14 days and we'll play the matches there and it'll be like a big festival, kind of like we do for the AFCON. I think that could be something that not only saves clubs money, but it could also add a lot of marketing value to the tournament as well. So uh, at the moment, it's all very up in the air. We're a little bit confused, but I do think that uh, overall, the African Football League is a positive development for African football because it's bringing in revenue. It's bringing in more eyes. But at the same time, it does lack a very clear long term vision leave you with this conversation I had with Basel Maqdadi on how uh, things have changed for Palestinian footballers since October 7th, but at the same time, they haven't really changed at all. Thanks, and uh, I'll see you next week. Hey, Basel, we're just going to start off with a very simple question. Uh, what is the appetite for football right now in Palestine?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think you know, when you are confronted with something as serious as a as a war and the uh, the death of thousands, you um you automatically get a, a hard reset of your priorities. So I do think that for um, the people who are living through the war, perhaps there isn't a um, a sort of focus on on football. I think for the wider Palestinian community, you know, football is so inter uh, intertwined in our daily lives that it's hard to take the focus completely off. Um, And I think what we saw after the events of uh, October 7th was a realization that uh, football could play a vital role in bringing attention to what's going on in Palestine. And we saw, I think, sort of maybe a knee jerk reaction from some of the European bodies uh, in uh, in football. And uh, a counter reaction to to that to make sure that uh, the wider world understood what was going on understood the um humanitarian crisis in Gaza and we saw a slew of footballers uh, come out and lend their and lend their voices to um to the Palestinians and their struggle yeah i think i I've, I've been heartened by the the reaction of the football world as a whole now i think when we say that we have to be honest with ourselves and say that you know, European football dominates so much of the discourse, dominates so much of the coverage, dominates so much of the um, of the public space. That if you know a European body or if a European club or if a European league says something, it resonates more just because of their their reach. I think if you take a step back and you look at the global reaction, you see one of uh, solidarity with the Palestinians uh, across the world on all the continents. I mean, I've seen. Uh, banners and TIFOs expressing solidarity with the Palestinians in South America, in Africa, in Far East Asia. Uh, this is not just a um, uh, an issue that resonates with people of the same ethnicity, uh, Arabs or people more or less of the same religion, Muslims. It's something that I think has uh, spilled over and you are seeing solidarity being expressed. Uh, by even fans of European clubs. I think a great example is what happened in La Liga over this weekend. You know, the first uh, the first game this match day was Osasuna against Granada uh, in El Sadar, and uh, La Liga had expressly prohibited uh, the display of Palestinian flags. The fans did not listen, and we saw that repeated in Real Sociedad's game, in Sevilla's game against Real Madrid... Uh, even in the Premier League, we saw Palestinian flags at Anfield. The banner that says "For God's sake, save Gaza." Uh, you know, players have come out and and I think risked a little bit because what we're seeing here is a dichotomy, and it seems that you know Palestine has the support of the people um, and uh, the you know the israeli army has the support of governments and uh powerful entities uh and you've seen a clash you know i think the premier league probably wanted to put out a statement um just condemning what happened on october 7th and uh portraying the you know 75 year old conflict as something that has only been going on for for 2 weeks and is you know more or less about um people being being shot at or kidnapped during a during a rave, which is a complete, um, complete reduction and a complete misrepresentation of what actually is is going on, which is the world's you know longest ongoing military occupation, apartheid. Uh, according not just to me, but to the UN, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Israeli human rights groups themselves. Um, and so it was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit weird to see that it could cause a controversy to say, yeah probably in the light of people dying you shouldn't stand in solidarity with a state that is guilty of of those practices yes yeah, stand in solidarity express your sympathy for innocent people uh, on both sides that have uh, that have lost their lives but it shouldn't be the reaction to um you know light up the Wembley arch in the colors of the israeli flag because of that and i think you know a lot of credit has to go to uh individuals individuals and in supporters groups uh, individual footballers who have uh, you know, stuck their, their neck out. I think you know, An uh, of FC Mainz and uh, Yusuf Al tal in in Liga uh, Masraoui as well, vice for Bayern. All these guys got you know suspended more or less they, for for what they said. Um, and you know, if you look at the juxtaposition, if somebody you know posted something that was you know the same message but in support of Israel, they didn't get uh, they didn't get fined, they didn't get called out. It was totally fine. So. I mean, I think it's it's really uh, heartwarming to see people um, speak for, for justice, speak for the, the, the Palestinian cause, um, show the world that this is something that is about uh, humanity and about a clear right and wrong. And, and you know, I have nothing but respect for uh, the fans, the supporters, groups of players um, who have who have gone out and uh, risked their, their own livelihoods sometimes to, uh, to communicate that message.
0: And that's the wider footballing world. But you've been in contact with actual Palestinian footballers, and what have they told you about their ability or inability to continue uh, playing at the moment?
1: it's it's difficult. Um, you know, we were in a completely different world. Uh, on October sixth, you know, the my my mind, the mind of the players was, uh, the October friendly window, the last set of friendlies before uh, World Cup qualifying. At least for us, starts in uh, Asia. It was all about, okay, uh, where are we at? Who will start those games? Who are we going to test out? Uh, combinations, you know, your your typical uh, football-focused topics were were front of mind um, for, for myself, for a lot of the players. Uh, since then, you know, the Palestine national team had to pull out of friendlies uh, in Malaysia. They were scheduled to play against Tajikistan and either uh, India and or Malaysia in the last friendly window. And, um, yeah, they couldn't go. They couldn't go because uh, from a logistical issue, it was impossible to cross the land border from uh, the West Bank into Jordan and then take the the flight. The reason why it was impossible wasn't so much that, you know, the border the borders only been open for a couple hours a day. Uh, it was more that, you know, once the events of October 7th happened, uh, settlers in the West Bank took to the streets uh, with the support of the Israeli military and, and you know, if you're a Palestinian on the roads in between, you know, city A and city B or going from your village to a city or, or trying to you know traverse the entire West Bank to get to the border, uh, you're likely to be met with settlers looking to extract some sort of vigilante justice. And that has been the situation now for the past two weeks. Uh, what the Palestine national team has been trying to do is to get out of the country, because what we know now is there is going to be a suspension of sport in the country uh, for a very, very long time. You have to also consider that there's also a, a suspension of uh, Israeli sport. That's how uh, bad things have, have have become and have deteriorated. So the plan for the Palestinian national team is to get out of the country and start um, an external training camp with the eye to get ready for uh, World Cup qualifiers in November and obviously further ahead the Asian Cup in 2024. The, the problem is right now we're talking team doctor, coaching staff, individual players, uh, can't really risk getting out of their house um, to, to to travel, so uh, it's going to be uh, a big logistical problem. And we'll see in the coming days if they're able to um, to get out of the country and 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 prepare for uh, what are what are very very important World Cup qualifiers against uh, Lebanon on November sixteenth and Australia on November twenty first.
0: And we spoke a few months ago and you told me that this was a promising generation of players. Does that does that exacerbate matters just even a little bit more?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, look, like I said, I think this was, uh, the, I wouldn't say the last chance, but this is a generation that really came onto the radar after Palestine made their breakthrough, which was qualifying for their first Asian Cup finals in 2015. Um, you know, the team that was sent there was a lot of the old guard, and then there was a renewal with some of these guys that were along for the ride and were the young guys of of that generation and have now become the leaders. Um, so, yeah, you're talking about players who are either in their prime or approaching their prime. they're ready for for a breakthrough. I think a lot of people who follow Palestinian football um, can, you know, give a lot of credit to the the powers that be for, an achievement like qualifying for three straight Asian cup finals. But at the same time, when they're looking for, you know, a signature match or a signature achievement, you know, usually it's, did you get to the third round of world cup qualifying? So were you ipso facto one of the best 12 teams in in Asia? No, that didn't happen. Uh, Did you get out of your group at the, uh, at the Asian cup? No, that didn't happen. Maybe a little bit unlucky with the, with the draw in both the 2015 and 2019 Asian cups. Um, so it seemed like this was this was the time, and obviously the the draw I think was an okay draw. Could have been maybe a little bit easier. Could have been a little bit tougher. But there was definitely a feeling uh, before all of this happened that yeah we are uh, comfortably better than Lebanon. Uh, we're in a better spot than Lebanon right now. We should be able to uh, play this away game, get at least a get at least a point, and then see what happens when Australia comes to Palestine, right? We know that Australia aren't good travelers. Um, they've particularly struggled away to, to, to Jordan. So I'm playing in Palestine would be all that much more harder on an artificial pitch and a stadium that is very, uh, you know, cramped and closely packed. So there was a lot of excitement for that. And obviously when you see something like this, um, kind of cutting you at the knees and potentially destroying your dreams of doing something at the next Asian cup or making a run at uh, qualifying for a 48-team uh, World Cup, it's, it's very frustrating for the fans and the players.
0: And on the African continent, we're very used to national teams not being able to play at home for several different reasons, whether they be security or, or lack of infrastructure. Can you just quantify how much of a disadvantage that is for Palestinian national team in the Asian context?
1: It's a huge disadvantage. I mean, you know, home field advantage is... Uh, Everything in international football, and yeah, it probably means a little bit more in a place like Asia or Africa, where you have uh, an established set of big teams, but you can sort of equal the playing field if they come to your house and they have to play on a not so perfect pitch and they have to play with a hostile crowd. It's a great equalizer. Um, you know, it's important I think for the listeners to know that Palestine has never lost a match on Palestinian soil on fifa day so any friendly any competitive match played in palestine they've either won or drawn and that included you know uh matches against teams uh stronger than them by all accounts uh you know the uae golden generation came to palestine they only managed to draw saudi arabia came to palestine uh palestine really should have won that match uh it ended in a in a zero zero draw that team went on to uh qualify for the world cup uh it was Pakistan in the last uh, World Cup qualifier came, came to Palestine. They lost. So you know there is this uh, fortress mentality of like, oh yeah, if someone's going to come to Palestine, they're not coming out of here with a with a win. So it is a huge advantage. I think what has happened with Palestinian football and and the footballers that represent the Palestinian national team is that they've become very resilient in uh, being able to play without the home field advantage. So I would say Palestine are are better travelers than. Uh, a lot of teams that are in and around their level because they've just done it so much. I mean, this is a team that hasn't played in Palestine for the last four years. The last match was that, that 0-0 draw I mentioned against Saudi Arabia in, in qualifying for the Qatar World Cup. Uh, they, they didn't play because you know, there was COVID, the logistical issues. Uh, there was supposed to be a return after four years to to their home ground in Jerusalem. That's that's not going to happen now. Um, so it is a, it is a disadvantage. At the same time, I do think these players players are a little bit more conditioned to playing on neutral territory. And I think they're, they're relatively good travelers. Um, And and that doesn't really get talked about that. You know, they can go on the road and play and play well and get results. Uh, You have to keep in mind that for this last um, for this last Asian cup, they reduced qualifying from six matches. So a home and away between uh, three teams in a 14 group to uh, just three matches in a centralized location. And they picked, I don't know why, but the Asian Football Confederation decided, we're going to have Palestine's group hosted in Mongolia, uh, by Mongolia, on a horrible pitch, like probably the worst pitch I've seen in all my time covering football. I mean, really, really bad. Artificial pitch, completely torn up. I mean, there are pitches uh, that I play on every weekend that are better than that pitch that they played in Mongolia. And, and you know, Palestine, they, they did well. They they went to territory. They won their first match uh, 1-0 against Mongolia, uh, and then they faced Yemen and, and Philippines, two teams that were at the last Asian Cup in 2019, and beat them 5-0 and 4-0 on that horrendous pitch. So I think uh, if Palestine has to do this, as long as nothing gets in the way of them having some sort of legitimate training and preparation time, I think they'll be okay no matter where they um, end up playing their, their match. But obviously, it would be so much better for them to, to host the match in Jerusalem.
0: And can you tell us about historically how the Palestinian national team has been sort of able to overcome uh, these challenges? Um, I saw that you wrote about the Second Intifada in particular, but in, in general, uh, how has this national team been able to overcome uh, these extra sporting o- obstacles?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people think back to the Second Intifada and what the team was able to do then. but. From a, from a big picture standpoint, you have to remember that during the second intifada, there wasn't a league for for Palestine to kind of lean on it and collect players from. So it was a team that was heavily reliant on bringing players from abroad. You know, that said, there are a lot of good memories. I think for older fans, they'll remember, um, you know, an Arab Cup where Palestine were the big entertainers. They scored a lot of goals, didn't get out of the group, but, you know, played a lot of- of classic matches a 3-3 draw against the hosts of Kuwait comes to comes to mind I think they also played like a, a 1-1 or a 2-2 against Jordan like a lot of classic um, matches by a team that sort of cobbled together from all corners of of the globe playing during particularly diff- difficult times um, you know there have been also times where you know the political situation just gets in the way and you know that they, they Palestine couldn't continue qualifying for 2010 for the 2010 World Cup because It was just too much. You couldn't get half the team because they were stuck in Gaza, no permit. They had to withdraw from from World Cup qualifying. So there are instances where historically they've been able to overcome and and give a good account of themselves. And there are other instances where they're not able to do that. Now, that said, that was also done in an environment where there wasn't really a a, a league being consistently played in Palestine. Fast forward 20 years now, you do have a league that's been consistently played That. You know, it's not the greatest league in the world, but if you look at, like, the players in the national team, a lot of them are products of that league. Um, you know, the captain, Musab al is a product of that league. The vice captain, Tanrussi Gambo, who is in Thailand right now, is a product of that league. Rami Hamadi, who is, for my money, a, a top five Asian goalkeeper, is a product of of that league. So for all its shortcomings, it is developing players, and there are young players that are coming through the pipeline. Um I think a, a good example in uh, more, more recent history of what this team is able to overcome in difficult circumstances is what they did um, in 2021. So after you know, COVID stopped international football in 2020, Palestine resumed play in 2021. In, in June, they had three games, which was basically, uh, I think for me and a lot of fans, a, a litmus test on what to expect from this team going forward, because they had crashed and burned in World Cup qualifying after uh, securing a famous win against Uzbekistan. They lost to Yemen. They lost to Singapore. Or it was it, and that just destroyed their chances of, of getting to round three of, of World Cup qualifying. They fired the coach, Nuruddin Ali. People weren't happy that you know an assistant on the staff, Makram Dabu, was the, the guy that came in to take charge. And this was all happening in May 2021, where there were also um You know, uh, there was also an eruption of violence because, you know, Israeli settlers were trying to evict people from uh, their homes in Jerusalem. There were incursions into Al-Aqsa Mosque that uh, ended up resulting in a flare-up of violence and a war on Gaza and, you know, intercommunal violence. Uh, it, It was a mess, but the team managed to get out of the country. They were in cap for three weeks. And, you know, all credit to book. he whipped them up into shape. They were playing a high press. They did really well. They destroyed uh, Singapore 4-0, beat Yemen 3-0. And then they had um, an Arab Cup qualifier against Comoros, where they also uh, beat them 5-1, despite going down uh, a goal within the first five minutes. And I think that gives uh, me and a lot of followers of this national team a bit of heart that, yeah, if we can get out of the country in the next couple of days and give this coach... Some time to to you know guide his players on what he wants. We'll be ready to to go. So as long as you know things don't get in the way and the team can actually have some sort of preparatory period, I think they will be okay and they'll be able to play up to expectations.
0: You've written very recently about this Palestinian footballer named Hazem Um Can you just tell us his story and what he's had to go through?
1: Yeah, I think this is uh, a perfect example of what. Palestinian football is about, in that it doesn't matter kind of what happens. Palestinian football keeps going. You have to keep in mind, you know, if we talk about the big picture, this is a national team whose association appeared in 1928, disappeared, uh, was kind of around for the next 20 years, disappeared for the next 50 years, came back in 1998, and you know is is now a, a team that you can confidently consider one of the top 15 teams in, in Asia, even in that period where there was no national team, there were still players being, being developed, right? The, the first uh, international player, the first foreign player in the Greek super league for Ayak Athens was a guy by the name of uh, Firas al-Mughrabi. So, um, or Ibrahim al-Mughrabi, sorry. Um, you know, that just goes to show that there, there was talent. Uh, and uh, Palestinians are, Able to achieve in spite of the um, of the hardships that are in their way. Uh, to get back to the story of Hazem Rakhawi, Hazem is a guy who's been playing football for the past two decades professionally. Uh, he's from Gaza. He's from uh, the southern city of Rafah near the Egyptian border. And uh, during the uh, war on Gaza that was termed Operation uh, Iron Lead, he was studying at his technical college in Gaza City. And he got onto a, a little minibus, him and nine of his um, uh, classmates to go back to Rafah. And during their journey, his bus was uh, struck by a missile from an Israeli uh, F-16. Um, everybody on that bus died, um, including what they thought Hazm not as well. They also thought he was, he was dead. His body arrived at the hospital. He was all burnt up, full of shrapnel. Um, so they wrapped him up. And they put him in the uh, the, the fridge in the morgue. Uh, five hours later, uh, a woman comes to identify her the body of her dead son, and she realizes that uh, Hasm's hand is moving. Um, and they come to the realization that this man is alive. So they pull him out of the fridge, uh, you know, do what they need to do to resuscitate him. But it was still a question mark on whether or not. Uh, Hazem would be able to uh, pursue a career in, in football. And lo and behold, a couple of years after that, I think two or three years later, he moves from Gaza to the West Bank, which is traditionally the, the first step you make uh, in your career as a footballer to at least earn a little bit more money. And he played for eight different clubs in the top flight of uh, the West Bank Premier League, uh, had a great career and decided uh beginning of this season you know what i'm done i want to go back home i want to go play for shabab Rafah. It goes back to shabab Rafah. and about 10 days ago or so uh his house gets bombed and you know, a picture made its way out of gaza to me of him uh you know battered and bruised but still alive being pulled from the rubble in his you know in, his, in a pair of football shorts um and I think that's just very emblematic of what Palestinian footballers go through, especially those from the Gaza Strip. They have lived through many wars. Uh, and despite, you know, wars, despite losing family, despite maybe having their houses destroyed, uh, they keep going. Um, you know, Hasan has represented Palestine at youth level. He never got a senior national team cap, but, you know, there are many footballers like him uh, who are either in the strip or out of the strip watching the events uh, unfold who will, you know, go back and, and do their job and, uh, and play football and keep going despite uh, all the horrible things that are that are going on. Where can people follow
0: you and, and the rest of your work, which is obviously even more important at the moment than than it always has been?
1: Yeah, of course, you can uh, follow my work at FootballPalestine.com. Uh, if you want all my articles to Go directly to your inbox. You can subscribe to my Substack. There's a free and paid version of that, uh, which is it's, it's the same website: it's footballpalestine.substack.com. Uh, I'm not very active on all social media, uh, Twitter, or I guess X is what it's being called these days. Um, my handle is at footballpalestine, uh, football as in the Spanish spelling because uh, it was too long to to fit into one handle. Um, so yeah, you can find me there and uh, be happy to to accept all the new followers and and educate them about the wonderful world of Palestinian football.